doing our series, The Untamed God, and, th and this is a study of, of God's attributes, a study of the way that God really is, and not just what our small and limited thoughts often have for him or give him permission to be. And, and, and one of the main takeaways that I want you to get from this series is that God is really different from us. Right? God is like us in some important ways. Uh, it'd be more accurate to say we're like God. We're, we're made in his image. And so there, there are aspects, because of how God has designed us, there are things about God that he, he uses our own experience to help us understand. Right, we we know, uh, you know, most of us have a relationship with an earthly father that helps to reveal what God is like as father. Now there, there's limitations and there's imperfection that marks human relationships here and now, but but there's still you, you can pick up uh, something in your experience in order to you know get a little better insight as to what God is like, or maybe maybe you've been around somebody who's just really wise. Uh, or they, they're just able to understand and explain life in a helpful way. And that, and that shows you what God is like. It shows you God is wise. Right? He is the one with insight. He is the one who can tell us how life was designed to be lived. Uh, but there's a, there's a whole aspect, a whole set of aspects of who God is that there is nothing in your experience that you can pick up in order to understand. I mean, you just do something as basic as the Trinity. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explain the Trinity to my three-year-old and four-year-old. Uh, there is just one being, God, and notice, I, I, I don't know why I did this. I held up two fingers uh, just now. One being, get it right, uh, three persons, three distinct persons that share one being. There's one God, three persons, and, you know, those words make sense, and they're not a contradiction, but there is nothing in our experience that is anything like that, right? And, and, and so there's this whole category of, of God's attributes, and if, and if you want the fancy, nosebleedy theological term for it, it's the incommunicable attributes, right? Like communicable, like communication, like there, there's something that we share with him. So, so there are attributes of God that we share with him, and there are aspects of the way that he is that we've got nothing in common with him, right? Start number one, uh, he is the creator <laughs> of everything else besides himself, right? Everything else that exists outside of God, is, it exists because he's made it, including us, and we are creatures. And so we don't share in common with God creating the universe out of nothing or being the cause for everything else that uh, exists. And, and, and I know this is taking us pretty deep, and that's part of my hope for this series, is, is because the, you know, the premise is our thoughts of God are too small. And we can never know too much of God. That, that, that's never a danger. There's never the danger of, I, I guess we study God too much. Let's move on to some other topic here. Right? So you will never hit the bottom. Uh, I like the way that John Piper says it. I like the way he says many things. Uh, there has never been an era when too many people thought too deeply about God or knew him too well. It is impossible 
to know God too well. He is the most important person who exists, and this is because he made all others. And any importance they have is owing to him. So he's giving that key difference between God and everything else. Any strength of intelligence or skill or beauty they have comes from him. On every scale of excellence, he is infinitely greater than the best person you ever knew or ever heard of. But part of my concern is something like that can become noise to us because it just becomes so familiar to say, yeah, God's better than any person uh, that you could ever know. But that doesn't prevent other people from controlling you and being what you're thinking about and who you're fascinated by and who you want to be like and who has your attention. You, you can acknowledge all that on paper and you can be around it. You can grow up around it. And, and it's just like background noise in your experience. And, and so I, I want to I shock us a little bit tonight. I, I'm going to state tonight's topic in a way that should sound off. It should sound a little bit like heresy uh, something about it will sound wrong to you but because it, it, it's tugging on something that actually is true. But my hope is to provide a perspective shift that could serve you for the rest of your life. And whether that's as a teenager today in a church and wondering whether or not following God is really worth it. And maybe some of you are experiencing that. You, you are bumping up against restrictions and parameters that are in your life that you're, you know, it's like you have to live differently because of this whole Christianity thing and, and you're, you're trying to decide, I don't know how much of that I like or appreciate or, or enjoy. Well, what we talk about tonight ought to influence how you see that or, or maybe for the, for the girls in here, one day if, if you're a young mom and laboring under a sense of expectation and duty, and failure to measure up. Listen, there are, there are young moms that I talk through that they had, they had strong convictions, you know, through their youth group years, and, and just a heart to know God, and, and here they are, and they're in their, their 20s or their 30s, and they, they feel kind of bitter, they feel kind of shut down by life because it feels out of hand and it feels like there's just one more thing that I'm not getting to. There's just one more thing that God and the people around me expect me to do and that illustrates how I, ca I, can't, I can't handle it all. And, and, and you, you, you read to them some Bible verses and it just feels like it's crushing them. Right? They, they need to rediscover and they need to be helped by what we're talking about tonight and, and there might come a time when you need that as well. Uh, maybe there are some guys in here who, one day you're going to explore a, a possible call to ministry. There's going to be a desire in you to, to care for other people and use the abilities that God has, has given to you to, to lead them and, and to be a, a, a good influence on their life. And, and that could become exhausting as well if we don't get this right. So you, you're going to need these Two truths, right? And they're, they're in your notes there. It's first, we do not serve God. And second, God serves 
us. Now, before you try to get me fired for saying that, uh, this is what Jesus said. Right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And why did Jesus say that? Because that's how God is. There, there, there's a sense in which God does not want your service. He's not asked you to volunteer that. And his mission is to serve you. And we're going to see what that's all about. Um, this, is what, this is how God is very different from us. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 50. And we're talking about tonight the doctrine of God's self-sufficiency. Let's turn to the book of Psalms in chapter 50, and we're going to read verse 1 through 15 together. It says in verse 21, we won't look at this verse uh, tonight, but it says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And that's the big error that he's wanting to adjust. He's not like us in this way, right? Uh, Psalm 50, verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest, right? That's the untamed God. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. All right, that's kind of setting up all that he's going to say here. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God your God, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. O oh God, Help us to understand, Lord, both the content of what we are staring at tonight, but beyond that, Lord, let us be affected. Let us feel its weight. Let us feel how it is designed to change our hearts and to free us and to transform our lives. Would it be so? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, first, we do not serve God. In verse 1, he says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. And so he's, he's standing as sovereign, and we're going to look at God's sovereignty uh, next month. Uh, but he, he's, you know, he's picturing all the world is summoned before him 
in this, in this psalm here. And, and you get that name, the Lord. And, and whenever you see that in your Bible, where it's got all capital letters, right, what that's telling you is that is translating the name Yahweh. Right? That, that is God's personal name. That's God's first name for his, his covenant people. They knew him as Yahweh. And, and remember where that came from with uh, Moses and he's approaching the burning bush and he wants to know, okay, you're sending me to these people. Who should I tell them is, is, is sending me? And he says, I am that I am. That is what defines God. He is the I am. He just is. Listen, you do not need anything outside of God to explain the existence of God. You don't need a reason for him. There's nothing else that he depends on in order to exist. He just is necessarily, and he always has been, and he always will be, and he is the only being who is like this. I'll give you another fancy theology term here. Uh, sometimes God's self-sufficiency is called his aseity. And it comes from this, this Latin phrase, ase, God exists from himself. Right? His own being is the reason why he exists. And, and, and that is in this name here. And, and no matter how special you are, how creative you are, how independent you feel, how much you think you own life, everything that we have is derived. Everything that God is, is original to him. Right? There is, we, we never have an original thought. Uh, we, we're just taking parts and pieces of what somebody else has put together and rearranging it. Uh, the game we played tonight, I ripped off from a, a YouTube channel called Good Mythical Morning. That wasn't original to me. So we, 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 we no matter you know, how special we think we are, we are borrowing from somebody else who is ultimately borrowing from God. But God just is. I like, I like how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, the best man, no matter how good he is, no matter how special he thinks he is, he can only say that by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what the Apostle Paul said. But he says, God just says, I am, period. And that's all that you need to know. Uh, this is how a guy named uh, Gerhardus Voss, and if you're looking for baby names uh, one day, put Gerhardus back on the table. Um, but he, he says this about the name Yahweh. He says, the name gives expression to the self-determination, the independence of God. That which, especially in association with salvation, we are accustomed to call his sovereignty. The name signifies primarily that in all that God does for his people, he is from within determined, not moved upon by outside influences, right? right? He is a God who he's from within determined. Influences from the outside don't change him, don't control him, don't manipulate him because he has no needs. I mean, think of how this works. Right? If you are, are at a, a ballpark or, or you 
uh, or, or at some sort of theme park, you know, where you're riding rides and you're out in the sun and you're getting exhausted and, and you just feel like, you know what, some burgers and some fries and just a cold soda would just be perfect right now. Right? The creators of that theme park know that you're experiencing it. They know you've been out in the sun. They know your stomach is especially hungry. You, you feel like you haven't eaten in months. And they also know you're not leaving this theme park. So, so you've got a need, and everything that's available to you is right here. And so that's why they charge like $17 for the burger and $12 for the drink. So they, they, they are manipulating the fact that you have a need. They've got you. And I don't know if you, if you guys realize this. If, if you are, if you tend to be a, a needy person, if you're not settled in who you are in God, and you're feeling like I'm always needing affection and always needing attention from other people, uh, you don't realize how much they manipulate you and how much they get you to do exactly what they want to do and feel like you're kind of easy because you're needy. Listen, God is not that way. And, and this is really good news. He says in verse seven, I am God, your God. Why? Because we twisted his arm? Because we were really good? Because we were really lovely or impressive or finally started having a quiet time? Is that why he's our God? Because we've paid him off by our obedience or by our worship? No. Everything he does comes from within. And he just desires to bless. And we'll, we'll see that in a moment. But, but apparently that's not how Israel had begun to see their relationship to God. All right, look, look back down in your passage here in verse 8 again. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So this is actually a period in, in Israel's history where they are honoring the sacrifices. Right? There, there's just so many times when they just totally neglected that and forgot, wait, there's this thing called the law. We're supposed to celebrate Passover. We're supposed to do this. Uh, this is actually a time where they're, they're, they're showing up. They're showing up to church on time. They're, they're making sure to be there, right? They're present. They're bringing their offering to God. And he's like, I, you know, I'm not correcting you because of that. Yeah, sure, you arrive. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle are a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the implied answer is obviously not a chance, and I hope you don't either, because that's just disgusting, right? Um, but listen, Israel, they're, they're, they're a nation among these other influences and these other ideas and this pagan system where you would bring your offering to serve your deity and, and you would sit down and, 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 and he would in theory, eat part of the meal. Now, that, that kind of never really happens, so you're just kind of pretending that's what's going on in this moment. And, and your God gets a full tummy and becomes happy with what you have brought to him, and then he decides, 
All right, I'll bless you. I'll make your crops grow and I'll, I'll make your, you know, your family fruitful and you'll have a lot of children and they won't be taken down by illness and you'll be successful in life. And there's kind of this tit-for-tat relationship between the worshiper and the deity, right? And, and, and they thought they were doing that with Yahweh. They thought, God kind of owes us one now, right? Because we're doing the sacrifices and he really likes those. You know, he, he really appreciates that. And so, God, we've been on our best behavior now. When's some blessing going to show up in our life? And listen, that, that's not so ancient, is it? We might not have some of the rituals, although we have our own rituals, but sometimes we think that we're, we're doing God a favor with our obedience. And, 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 if, and if we've been faithful, if we've kind of honored the code for a while, we're feeling good about life, and then if, if things start turning against us and it feels like it's not going our way, it's like, well, what's the point of even doing the right thing? What gives God? Why am I walking through this in, in life? Is something wrong? Right? Haven't I honored you? And the assumption is, through obeying God, I've, I've done something, I've given him something, and now he owes me because of what I've, I've done. But whatever is happening when we worship and obey the Lord, it is not meeting some kind of need that he has. And this is the, the point the Apostle Paul makes in the city of Athens, he's sitting uh, among this very religious city and they have all these idols and they have this one uh, idol that's made to an unknown God. And, and, and he's saying, what, what you don't know about, I'm going to tell you about, but you, you've got it wrong from the start because you think you're making this idol and that represents him. And you think you're, you're serving him through these practices that you're doing in the, in the temple. But he says this, Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. So he, first he talks about creation. There's God and there's everything else that God has made that depends on him. Being Lord of heaven and earth, so there's his sovereignty, his control over everything, does not live in temples made by man. And if you paid attention last month, you know why. Because it can't contain him. Because the the... 14 billion light year size universe is not big enough to contain God. And then verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. That's what we're saying about, right? Without God, You've got no life. You've got no breath. You've got nothing. Without you, God is just fine. He is who he always has been. He has no needs. He obviously doesn't have any physical needs like food or, or sleep, but it's common to picture God in a way like he's got some sort of emotional needs, right? He, he just has these warm, fuzzy feelings about you. And, and he made you because he needed somebody to love. You just got to have somebody to love, right? That, that's kind of the, 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 the thought behind I, I, why, why God created you 
why he made the world. He has this kind of human-shaped hole in his heart that only we can fulfill. Uh, why God saved us. I mean, there's, a, there's a popular worship song um, that we've, we've sung part of it, but not all of it. And the reason why we haven't sung one of the verses is because it says that Jesus just couldn't have heaven without us. It's like, can you picture it? Jesus is, he's in heaven. He's in the glory of his Father. He, he is in perfect contentment in the fellowship that they have always shared together. And it's just like, you know what I need here? Seth Collins, man. That's a bad day, right? <laughs> hey, I, I would feel that that's a bad day, but I think Jesus would be just fine. So for whatever reason, he saved us. It was not because he couldn't stand having heaven without us, right? Uh, this, this quote from James Dolezal, and I know this is, again, this is heady stuff, but this is good. He says, God requires nothing beyond himself for the perfect enjoyment of himself. Right? God looks in a mirror and he sees everything he could ever want and everything he could ever need. Now, some of you might think that way about yourself, <laughs> that when you look in the mirror, it's like, right here, this is all we ever need, right? Um, and, and there's a problem with, with, with that. I mean, there, there is this common temptation in our culture to see ourselves in this way. Uh, a couple of years ago, Lady Gaga, before her tour, she kind of described it as a religious experience. And she said, it's more self-worship, I think. Not of me. I'm teaching people to worship themselves. And the problem is, right, you and I, we are not capable of providing that kind of fulfillment for ourselves or for anybody else. And when we, when we turn from God to worship created things, uh, we just start burning through them. We use and abuse and run over people in the process and when it's all said and done, it hasn't delivered much. And so, you know, when we, when we hear that, when I say something like God looks in the mirror and sees everything he could ever want, that sounds strange to us. It sounds like vanity because we know if I were to look in the mirror and say that, you, you would say, uh, Evan, get a life. Uh, yes. Right? Uh, but the difference between who we are as creatures and who God is, is in God's case, it's actually true. He actually is that perfect and that infinite. And for God to, to transfer that to anything that he has made and say, you're, you're worthy of worship. You're worthy of being what I most love and the object of my affection would be for God to commit idolatry and for him to say something that is false. But, but listen, God's mirror is a person, right? When, when Jesus was baptized, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know Jesus makes God the Father really happy? And that's good news because if we're in Jesus, that's the way that he feels about us because of Jesus. But first we need to see it true of him. He sees in his son the, the mirror image of all of his 
perfections, of all of his character, of all of his beauty and his worth. And he says, I'm pleased in him. He's everything I need. And that's been true forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had all the love, all the acceptance, all the happiness they could ever want, they could ever need. And they weren't looking for additional members like they were some reboot band on tour, just desperate. It's like, well, well three of us got back together. We just need a bass player now. Uh, the, the Trinity's not looking for a fourth member, right? Uh, they were perfectly fine before we ever arrived on the scene. And so whatever God's reason for creating, it was not because he needed us. If we never existed, if the entire planet and all of human history never were, God would not be at a loss. We do not serve God as if he needed anything. Now, here's my question. How does it make you feel? Does that make you feel a little disappointed because it makes you feel less special? This, listen, this ought to be comforting. Uh, this is called, in, in 1 Timothy 1.11, the good news of the glory of the blessed or the happy God. That God is really happy is really good news for us. Because what that means is if we're in a relationship with him, there's nothing that we can do that's going to steal away from that. right? And, and that means he is always capable of managing our lives and managing the universe with perfection and wisdom and care. I mean, you guys know this. If you're really depressed, if you're in a bad mood, it's like, stay away. Don't ask me for advice. I'm going to just tell you to blow everything up in your life, right? Uh, God's never in that condition. He's the happy God. And that's really good for us. Uh, there was a, there's a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata that some of you may have heard of. Um, when she was 19 years old, she was in a diving accident. She, she dove into a pool, didn't understand if it was, you know, how shallow it was, um, broke her neck, and ever since then has been a quadriplegic. She's, she's paralyzed from the neck down. She can't move her arms or her legs. All she can do is move her head. And actually, she's learned how to paint by holding a, a, a paintbrush in her mouth. And is a, it's a really capable artist, but she has lived, she's in her, I believe in her 60s now, 50s or 60s, ever since she was 16. I mean, some of y'all are 16 in here. Can you imagine the rest of your life changing in a moment? And that's not what defines you. You are constrained to a wheelchair and you can't move your hands and your arms. And, and you know, you know what she could be going through. We don't know it from our experience, but you can imagine the depression, the confusion, trying to figure out, what, where is God in this? All right, here's what she has to say about this doctrine. Long, long before matter existed, before the cosmos took its first breath, before the first angel opened his eyes, when there was nothing, God had already lived forever. He had not just lived forever, he had been contented forever. And whatever God was, he still is and always will be. An odd thought for us moderns. Who says God is contented? Assuming it's true, is it good news? 
After all, the entire human race is trudging through pain. Should God be allowed to watch it all happen with his feet up in a hammock? Maybe the notion of a satisfied, untroubled creator disturbs you, but it shouldn't. For if God is to rescue anyone from heartache, he had best not be bleeding himself. And that's what we're going to look at next, how God steps in to rescue. God has no needs, but we do. And because he is sufficient for his own infinite being, he is enough for us. All right, so second point, final point, God serves us. If this is the case, what kind of worship does God accept? Because he's telling Israel, you were showing up to worship on time, but I'm not, I'm not taking it from you. It does not please me. All right, so what does? In verse 14, what does it mean to glorify God? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Now, it's really easy to read past that, and and here's where it would help if you have a study Bible, because what's he talking about there? Because it just sounds like, yeah, you know, come and say thanks. Well, he he has something specific in mind. Uh, The ESV study Bible says the Psalms then turn to the right use of sacrifices Focusing on the sacrifice of thanksgiving and vows, these were both kinds of peace offerings, which was the only kind of sacrifice in which the worshiper ate some of the sacrificial animal. Its primary function was to eat a meal in company with the sacrificer's family and the needy with God as the host. Right? You can think of that image from Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So when the worshipers would come, they were to picture God is setting up the table and he's the host. And you come to worship and you worship God. You thank God by eating, by feasting, by enjoying, by receiving something that he has provided and he loves it. He loves to spread the table. He loves to be the source and the supply. And he wants us to come hungry, which is another way of saying he wants us to come dependent on him. Right? Don't, don't come self-reliant. Uh, don't, don't come to times of worship or times when you might be reading your Bible or praying trying to make a case for why you've got it together or trying to hide your flaws and the issues that you have going on come dependent and messy and needy and throw yourself upon him. And, and, and listen, this is what honors him. Look at, look at verse 14 again. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Do you see the connection there? I will deliver you. I will be everything you need. I'm going to show up and save the day in your life, because you've come recognizing God, I need you. I am not capable. I can't do this. I'm desperate. 
and I'm going to show up in your life, and that exactly is the kind of worship that honors him and that glorifies him. In Scripture, to glorify God is not to bring to him something that he lacked, but to receive from him what only he can give. God is not looking for you to pay him back or help him out. He's looking to be your deliverer. He's looking to be your savior. He's looking to be sufficient for you because he's sufficient in himself and he knows that you are needy. Uh, I love this thought from Sam Storms. The God of the Bible is the kind of God whose greatest delight comes not from making demands, but from meeting needs. God is always the giver. We are always the getters. I like this thought that uh, John Piper gives. Um, he, he says, you have two, two pictures of, um, if, you, if you think of a watering trough, you know, like one of those basins that animals drink out of that uh, is constantly needing to be refilled. Um, and, and, and sometimes that's how we think that when we come and we sing to God, that's what we're doing. We're, we're bringing the bucket of our praise. We're bringing a contribution that we have to make and we're dumping it into the watering trough and we're filling them up. It's like, God, I'm here to glorify you. And sometimes people think that's why God made the world because he just was unfulfilled and he just wanted to be able to boss people around and, and get their worship because he has some inf inferiority complex he developed in kindergarten uh, as not the God of the Bible. But listen, we, we, you know, that's how the culture sounds. But sometimes if, if you're most aware of your duty in a moment like tonight or Sunday or in your acts of obedience, like you've come and you've got your bucket that you're supposed to bring to God, because that's what he's asked you to do, you've got it totally wrong. And Piper says, he's, he's not a watering trough. He's a mountain spring. He is this endless source that is always flowing with refreshing water. And what God wants you to bring is your thirst. He wants you to come and say, I need you. I'm thirsty. Life has me in a place of being thirsty. My soul is in a condition of being thirsty. And I trust God that you can be enough for me. And that is what it means to glorify him. Now here's where this, again, this can flip upside down some of our common ways of thinking about the Christian life. You are supposed to seek out your benefit. Right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, common to think, well, you, you, you shouldn't live in a way that's just after your happiness or after your joy or trying to get what you can out of it. You, you should serve and you should sacrifice and, and you should make sure that other people and that God himself benefits from what you do. And, and the Bible does use the language of sacrifice, but it's always so that you can get something that's better. Right? If you follow all those statements in Scripture, you should, you should deny yourself, you should lay down your life, you take up your cross. That's never the end of the sentence. There's always something else on the other side. And what you get 
is Jesus. What you get is treasure that's hidden in the field, that you, you sell your $200 worth of possessions and you get the $2 billion that was buried there because you realize, I'd rather have that. I'm willing to sacrifice and part with what I have in order to have that. And the problem isn't often that, and this is how C.S. Lewis says it, the issue isn't that we want too much. That's not what leads us into sin. That's not what leads us into patterns of temptation and seeking out things from the world. The problem isn't that our desires are too big and God's like, hey, put a curb on those desires. He made those. It's that we're settling for something that is far less when he has something so much more available to us. So we're not to seek what benefits us here and now, but we are to run as far and hard after what will benefit us ultimately. All right, let, me, let me close with this, th- these two thoughts. Um, the first is to turn from self-reliance and embrace the fact that you are not enough for your life. And, and some of us are okay with that, that's kind of the MO that we've lived. Um, but that's a problem for some of us because we feel like I've always, I've always got to have it together and I've always got to be able to measure up you know, academically, athletically, um, expectations of my parents, morally, and what it looks like to be a good Christian. And, and those are all fine categories to have and to, to want to grow in, but it will crush you if you don't embrace the fact that you just do not have it together. And we need him. And, and, and what God loves to do is to put you in places where you are at your limits so that he can show up and do what Psalm 50 describes. You cry out to me and I will deliver you. And that will glorify me. What does not glorify God is if we think, I can handle this. I've got this. And listen, if we don't pray, that's what we're saying. I've got this on my own. I can handle life without you. First Peter 4 is not on this slide, but this is what it says. All right, so yes, we do serve God, but First Peter 4.11, serve by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Serve in a way that glorifies God, which means serve in what he supplies from his own sufficiency. All right, that's our first thought for us. And second is, is this how you see God? Do you see God and his law and his commandments and his expectations for your life and the boundaries that are in place and the lines that he's drawn and said, don't cross this, um, Do you realize he's after your joy? He's not trying to suck the fun out of life for you. He's designed it. And he wants you to be as happy as you could ever be in him. All right, final quote for us, and then I'll pray to close this. Sam Storm says, every syllable of every statute, every clause of every commandment that ever proceeded from the mouth of God was divinely designed to bring those who would obey into the greatest imaginable happiness of heart. 
Don't swallow God's law like castor oil. For when you understand his intent, it will be like honey on your lips and sweetness to your soul. I hope you feel that in this way. That whenever you encounter something in here that says, stop doing that and start doing this. Right? It's, it's not some external constraint, but that your heart realizes this is the God who made you and who loves you and who did not have to make you, but who created you out of the overflow of his own goodness and his desire to share that perfect fellowship that he has always had with others, with you and me, seeking to ensure that we get as much joy and as much pleasure, not only in this life, but for all eternity that we can. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me that I am that way. And come to me and I'll be your supply. Let's pray. Lord, would we trust you? Lord, wherever it is that we are needing this message, needing to apply it, Lord, if it's, Lord, in a, an approach to life that too often embraces self-sufficiency and ignores you and ignores our need for you, would you forgive us for that? Lord, if we've had any sort of distorted understanding of who you are and your motives and what you are after in our lives, Lord, help us to see you accurately and help us to seek with all of the energy that you supply to deepen our delight in you for all eternity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.